This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Who Will Greet You at Home by Leslie Inyeka Arima, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 2015. Her mother had formed her from mud and twigs and wrapped her limbs tightly with leaves, like moin moin, pedestrian items that had produced a pedestrian girl. Ogechi was determined that her child would be a thing of whimsy, soft and pretty and tender and worthy of love. The story was chosen by Zizi Packer, whose story collection, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, was published in 2003. Hi, Zizi. Hi, Deborah. Welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's great <laughs> to be back. So how did you first come across this story, Who Will Greet You at Home? Did you read it in the magazine when it came out? Yeah, I did. I read it in the magazine. I couldn't kind of believe the story. I was just so impressed by it. You know, I didn't know who this young new writer was. And not that shortly after, I believe it was maybe a year or so after, I met her at McDowell. And we kind of uh, really hit it off and we would write 3,000 words a day with each other and that kind of thing. But but yeah, I, I first met her just by way of the story itself. Uh-huh. What impression did it make on you at the time? Well, I was just blown away, I'll be honest with you, because I kept <laughs> thinking... Here's this story that sort of starts off very quietly and creeps up sort of on you. And then you're kind of only thinking in this very fairy tale way about it. Like, are you not, not quite a fairy tale way because, you know, there's the real world, but then there's this other aspect of it. And it's something that like Jerome Stern calls a kind of blue moon, where it's kind of like this just one supernatural aspect of the world. And the rest of the world seems to go kind of as is. And all of this is just making me hop along with the story as it's being told, rather than analyzing the story the way I normally kind of tend to do when I'm reading stories. I just marveled at it. And I still do to this day. Yeah, it's hard to classify, isn't it? It's not quite speculative fiction. It's not satire. It's got a little folktale in it. It's got a little horror story in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, a little magical realism, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it makes me think of Maria Tartara. She's like this mm-hmm. Harvard, I guess, folklorist, fairy tale expert. I don't know what you call it. But she writes about fairy tales and their sort of psychological aspect and how each of them is sort of dealing with the sort of traumas of childhood that every child has. And I've always loved fairy tales. I just always have. I will just stop and read a fairy tale a couple of times a month. And I kind of realized why after reading some of her work Because they're just so interesting, you know, they're in this sort of very acute way in which they deal with what it's like to be a child and then what it means to go from childhood to adulthood. So to read about this, which incorporated like those fairy tale aspects, folktale aspects, but also had these very real literary psychological kinds of consequences, I thought it was just sort of very masterful. Yeah. Yeah. And she was so young when she wrote it and, and early in her in her writing career. Yeah. But already had this. In a way, it's more a fairy tale about the trauma of motherhood than the trauma yes. of childhood. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's the other thing that you don't really read about. Like one of the aspects of fairy tales that Maria Tartar sort of hits upon is that you'll almost always hear a read that they are orphaned in some way. And this is kind of like a reverse orphan story. You know, you have right, this yeah. woman, you know, this girl slash woman who is wanting to be this mother and what it means for her to then suddenly get a child rather than suddenly be orphaned. And so that to me was just, you know, as a mother myself, I was just intrigued by it and how she could capture so many aspects of motherhood that we don't even want to sort of admit to, like that there's this way in which, you know, you're doing everything for this child, no matter what the child is sort of doing to you in your personal life. You're just going ahead and you're like, okay, I'll give you my all. I don't know if I'm revealing too much of my own motherhood style there, but. Yeah, it'll all come clear when people hear the story. So maybe we should dive in now. And now here's Zizi Packer reading Who Will Greet You at Home? by Leslie Anyeka Arima. 
Who will greet you at home? The yarn baby lasted a good month, emitting dry, cotton-soft gurgles and pooping little balls of lint before Ogechi snagged its thigh on a nail and it unraveled as she continued walking, mistaking its little huffs for the beginnings of hunger, not the cries of an infant being undone. By the time she noticed it, it was too late, the leg a tangle of fiber, and she pulled the string the rest of the way to end it, rather than have the infant grow up maimed. If she was to mother a child, to mute and subdue and fold away parts of herself, the child had to be perfect. Yarn had been a foolish choice, she knew, the stuff for women of leisure, who could cradle wool and the comfort of their own cars and in secure houses devoid of loose nails. Not for an assistant hairdresser who took Donfall to work if she had money, walked if she didn't, and lived in an apartment that amounted to a room she could clear in three large steps. Women like her had to form their children out of sturdier, more practical material to withstand the dents and scrapes that came with a life like hers. Her mother had formed her from mud and twigs and wrapped her limbs tightly with leaves like moin-moin, pedestrian items that had produced a pedestrian girl. Ogechi was determined that her child would be a thing of whimsy, soft and pretty and tender and worthy of love. But first, she had to go to work. She brushed her short, choppy hair and pulled on one of her two dresses. Her next child would have 30 dresses, she decided, and hair so long it would take hours to braid, and she would complain about it to anyone who would listen, all the while exuding smug pride. Ogechi treated herself to a bus ride only to regret it. Two basket weavers sat in the back row with woven raffia babies in their laps. One had plain raffia, streaked with blues and greens, while the other's baby was entirely red, and every passenger admired them. They would grow up to be tough and bright and skillful. The children were not yet alive, so the passengers sang the call and response that custom dictated. Where are you going? I am going home. Who will greet you at home? My mother will greet me. What will your mother do? My mother will bless me and my child. It was a joyous occasion in a young woman's life when her mother blessed life into her child. The two girls flushed and smiled with pleasure when another woman commended their handiwork. Such tight, lovely stitches and wished them well. Ogechi wished them death by drowning, though not out loud. The congratulating woman turned to her, eager to spread her admiration. But once she had looked Ogechi over, seen the threadbare dress, the empty lap, and the entirety of her unremarkable package, she just gave an embarrassed smile and studied her fingers. Ogechi stared at her for the rest of the ride, hoping to make her uncomfortable. When Ogechi had taken her first baby, a pillowy thing made of cotton tufts, to her mother, the older woman had guffawed, blowing out so much air she should have fainted. She'd then taken the molded form from Ogechi, gripped it under its armpits, and pulled it in half. This thing will grow fat and useless, she'd said. You need something with strong limbs that can plow and haul and scrub. Soft children with hard lives go mad or die young. Bring me a child with edges, and I will bless it, and you can raise it however you like. When Ogechi had instead brought her mother a paper child, woven from the prettiest wrapping paper she'd been able to scavenge, her mother, laughing the whole time, had plunged it into the mop bucket until it softened and fell apart. Ogechi had slapped her, and her mother had slapped her back, and slapped her again and again, till the neighbors heard the commotion and pulled the two women apart. Ogechi ran away that night and vowed never to return to her mother's house. At her stop, Ogechi alighted and picked her way through the crowded street until she reached 
Mama Said Hair Emporium, where she worked. Mama also owned the store next door, an eatery to some, but to others, like Ogechi, a place where the owner would bless the babies of motherless girls for a fee. And Ogechi still owed that fee for the yarn boy who was now unraveled. When she stepped into Emporium, the other assistant hairdressers noticed her empty arms and snickered. They'd warned her about the yarn, hadn't they? Ogechi refused to let the sting of tears in her eyes manifest and grabbed the closest broom. Soon, clients trickled in, and the other girls washed and prepped their hair for Mama Walogechi, swept up the hair shed from scalps and wigs and weaves. Mama arrived just as the first customer had begun to lose patience and soothe her with compliments. She noted Ogechi's empty arms with a resigned shake of her head and went to work curling, sewing, perming, until the women were satisfied or in too much of a hurry to care. Shortly after three, the two younger assistants left together, avoiding eye contact with Ogechi, but smirking as if they knew what came next. Mama dismissed the remaining customer and stroked a display wig, waiting. Mama, I... Where is the money? It was a routine Mama refused to skip. She knew perfectly well that Ogechi didn't have any money. Ogechi lived in one of Mama's buildings, where she paid in rent almost all of the meager salary she earned and ate only once a day at Mama's canteen next door. I don't have it. Well, what will you give me instead? Ogechi knew better than to suggest something. Mama, what do you want? I want just a bit more of your joy, Ogechi. The woman had already taken most of her empathy so that she found herself spitting into the palms of beggars. She'd started on joy the last time, agreeing to bless the yarn boy only if Ogechi siphoned a bit, just a dab to her. All that empathy and joy and who knows what else Mama took from her and the other desperate girls who visited her back room kept her blessing active long past when it should have faded. Ogechi tried to think of it as a fair trade, a little bit of her life for her child's life, anything but go back to her own mother and her practical demands. Yes, Mama, you can have it. Mama touched Ogechi's shoulder, and she felt a little bit sad, but nothing she wouldn't shake off in a few days. It was an even trade. Why don't you finish up in here while I check on the food? Mama was not gone for three minutes when a young woman walked in. She was stunning with long natural hair and delicate fingers and skin smooth and clear as fine chocolate. And in her hands was something that Ogechi wouldn't have believed existed if she hadn't seen it with her own eyes. The baby was porcelain with a smooth glazed face wearing a precious smirk. It wore a frilly white dress and frilly socks and soft-soled shoes that would never touch the ground. Only a very wealthy and lucky woman would be able to keep such a delicate thing unbroken for the full year it would take before the child became flesh. I am looking for this mama woman. Is this her place? Ogechi collected herself enough to direct the girl next door, then fell into a fit of jealous tears. Such a baby would never be hers. Even the raffia children of that morning seemed like dirty sponges meant to soak up misfortune when compared with a china doll to whom misfortune would never stick. If Ogechi's mother had seen the child, she would have laughed at how ridiculous such a baby would be, what constant coddling she would need. It would never occur to her that mud daughters need coddling too. Where would Ogechi get her hands on such beautiful material? The only things here were the glossy magazines that advertised the latest styles, empty product bottles, which Mama would fill with scented water and try to sell, and hair. Hair everywhere, short, long, fake, real, obsidian black, delusional blonde, bright, bright red. Ogechi upended the bag she'd swept the hair into, and it landed in a pile studded with debris. She grabbed a handful and shook off the dirt. Would she dare? After plugging one of the sinks, she poured in half a cup of Mama's most expensive shampoo. 
When the basin was filled with water and frothy with foam, she plunged the hair into it and began to scrub. She filled the sink twice more until the water was clear. Then she soaked the bundle in the matching conditioner, rinsed and toweled it dry. Next, she gathered up the silky strands and began to wind them. Round and round until the ball of hair became a body and nubs became arms, fingers. The strands tangled together to become nearly impenetrable. This baby would not snag and unravel. This baby would not dissolve in water or rain or in nail polish remover as the plastic baby had that time. This was not a sugar and spice child to be swarmed by ants and disintegrate into syrup in less than a day. This was no practice baby formed of mud that she would toss into a drain miles away from her home. She wrapped it in a headscarf and went to find Mama. The beautiful woman and her beautiful baby had concluded their business. Mama sat in her room, counting out a boggling sum of money. Only after she was done did she wave Ogechi forward. Another one? Yes, Mama. Ogechi did not uncover the child, and Mama didn't ask, long since bored by the girl's antics. They sang the traditional song. Where are you going? I am going home. Who will greet you at home? My mother will greet me. What will your mother do? My mother will bless me and my child. Mama continued with her own special verse. What does Mama need to bless this child? Mama needs whatever I have. What do you have? I have no money. What do you have? I have no goods. What do you have? I have a full heart. What does Mama need to bless this child? Mama needs a full heart. The Mama blessed her and the baby and, in lieu of a celebratory feast, gave Ogechi one free meat pie. Then she took a little more of Ogechi's joy. There was a good reason for Ogechi not to lift the cloth and let Mama see the child. For one, it was made of items found in Mama's store, and even though they were trash, Mama would add this to her ledger of debts. Second, everybody knew how risky it was to make a child out of hair, infused with the identity of the person who had shed it. But a child of many hairs, forbidden. But the baby was glossy, and the red streaks glinted just so in the light, and it was sturdy enough to last a full year, easy. And after that year, she would take it to her mother and throw it, not it, the baby, but the idea of it, in her mother's face. She kept the baby covered even on the bus, where people gave her coy glances and someone tried to sing the song, but Ogechi stared ahead and did not respond to her call. The sidewalk leading to the door of her little room was so dirty, she tiptoed along it, thinking that, if her landlord weren't mama, she would complain. In her room, she laid the baby on an old pillow in an orphan drawer. In the morning, it would come to life, and in a year, it would be a strong and pretty thing. There was an old tale about hair children. Long ago, girls would collect their sheddings every day until they had a bundle large enough to spin a child. One day, a storm blew through the town and every bundle was swept from its hiding place into the middle of the market where the hairs became entangled and matted together. The young woman tried desperately to separate their own hairs from the others. The elder mothers were amused at the girls' histrionics, how they argued over the silkiest patches and the longest strands. They settled the commotion thus, Every girl would draw out one strand from every bundle until they all had an equal share. Some grumbled, some rejoiced, but all complied, and each went home with an identical role. When the time came for the babies to be blessed, all the girls came forward, each bundle arriving at the required thickness at the same time. There was an enormous celebration of this once-in-an-age event, and tearful mothers blessed their tearful daughters' children to life. The next morning, all the new mothers were gone, some with no sign, others reduced to piles of bones stripped clean, others' bones not so clean. But that was just an old tale. The baby was awake in the morning, 
crying dry sounds like stalks of wheat rubbing together. Ogechi ran to it and smiled when the fibrous eyeless face turned to her. Hello, child. I am your mother. But still, it cried, hungry. Ogechi tried to feed it the detergent she'd given to the yarn one, but it passed through the baby as if it were a sieve. Even though she knew it wouldn't work, she tried the sugar water she'd given to the candy child with the same result. She cradled the child, the scritch of its cries grating her ears, and as she drew a deep breath of exasperation, her nose filled with the scent of Mama's expensive shampoo and conditioner answering her question. You are going to be an expensive baby, aren't you? Ogechi said with no heat. A child that costs much brought much. Ogechi swaddled it, ripping her second dress into strips that she wound along the baby's torso and limbs until it was almost fully covered, save for where Ogechi imagined the nose and mouth to be. She tried to make do with her own shampoo for now, which was about as luxurious as the bottom of a slow drain, but the baby refused it. Only when Ogechi strapped the child to her back did she find out what it wanted. The baby wriggled upward, and Ogechi hauled it higher, then higher still, until it settled its head on the back of her neck. Then she felt it, the gentle suckling at her nape as the child drew the tangled buds of her hair into its mouth. Ah, now this she could manage. Ogechi decided to walk today, unsure of how to nurse the child on the bus and still keep it secret, but she dreaded the busy intersection she would cross as she neared Mama's Emporium. The people milling about with curious eyes, the beggars scanning and calculating the worth of passerby. Someone would notice, ask. But as she reached the crossing, not one person looked at her. They were all gathered in a crowd, staring at something that was blocked from Ogechi's sight by the press of bodies. After watching a woman try and fail to haul herself onto the low-hanging roof of a nearby building for a better view, Ogechi pulled herself up in one, albeit labored, move. Mud girls were good for something. She ignored the woman stretching her arm out for assistance and stood up to see what had drawn the crowd. A girl stood with her mother, and though Ogechi could not hear them from where she perched, the stance the working of their mouths, all was familiar. They were revealing a child in public in the middle of the day. Even a girl like her knew how terribly vulgar this was. It was no wonder the crowd had gathered. Only a child of some magnitude would be unwrapped in public this way. What was this one, gold? No, the woman and the girl were not dressed finely enough for that. Their clothes were no better than Ogechi's. The child startled Ogechi when it moved. What she thought an obscene ruffle on the front of the girl's dress was, in fact, the baby. No more than interlocking twigs and sticks. Was that grass? Bound with old cloth? Scraps? A rubbish baby? It cried, the friction of sound so frantic and dry, Ogechi imagined a fire flickering from the child's mouth. A hiccup interrupted the noise, and when it resumed, it was a human cry. The girl's mother laughed and danced, and the girl just cried, pressing the baby to her breast. They uncovered the child together, shucking a thick skin of cloth and sticks, and Ogechi leaned as far as she could without falling from the roof to see what special attribute might have required a public showing. The crowd was as disappointed as she was. It was just an ordinary child with an ordinary face. They started to disperse, some throwing insults at the two mothers and the baby they held between them for wasting everybody's time. Others congratulated them with enthusiasm. It was a baby, after all. Something didn't add up, though, and Ogechi was reluctant to leave until she understood what nagged her about the scene. It was the new mother's face. The child was as plain as pap, but the mother's face was full of wonder. One would think the baby had been spun from silk. One would think the baby was speckled with diamonds. One would think the baby was loved. Mother cradled mother, who cradled child, a tangle of ordinary limbs, 
of ordinary women. There has to be more than this for me, Ogechi thought. At the shop, the two young assistants prepped their stations and rolled their eyes at the sight of Ogechi and the live child strapped to her back. Custom forced politeness from them, and with gritted teeth they sang, Welcome to the new mother. I am welcomed. Welcome to the new child. The new child is welcomed. May her days be longer than the breast of an old mother and fuller than the stomach of a rich man. The second the words were out, they went back to work, as though the song were a sneeze to be excused and forgotten. Until, that is, they took in Ogechi's self-satisfied air, so different from the anxiousness that it followed in her wake whenever she had blessed a child in the past. The two girls were forced into deference, stepping aside as Ogechi swept, where they would have stood still a mere day ago. When Mama walked in, she paused, sensing the shift in power in the room, but it was nothing to her. She was still the head. What matter if one toenail argued with the other? She eyed the bundle on Ogechi's back, but didn't look closer, and wouldn't, as long as the child didn't interfere with the work and, by extension, her coin. Ogechi was grateful for the child's silence, even though the suction on her neck built up over the day to become an unrelenting ache. She tired easily, as if the child were drawing energy from her. Whenever she tried to ease a finger between her nape and the child's mouth, the sucking would quicken, so she learned to leave it alone. At the end of the day, Mama stopped her with a hand on her shoulder. So you are happy with this one? Yes, Mama. Can I have a bit of that happiness? Ogechi knew better than to deny her outright. What can I have in exchange? Mama laughed and let her go. When Ogechi dislodged the child at the end of the day, she found a raw, weeping patch on her nape where the child had sucked her bald. On the ride home, she slipped to the back of the bus, careful to cradle the child's face against her ear so that no one could see it. The baby immediately latched onto her sideburn, and Ogechi spent the journey like that, the baby sucking an ache into her head. At home, she sheared off a small patch of hair and fed the child, who took the cottony clumps like a sponge absorbing water. Then it slept, and Ogechi slept too. If Mama wondered at Ogechi's sudden ambition, she said nothing. Ogechi volunteered to trim ends. She volunteered to unclog the sink. She kept the store so clean a rumor started that the building was to be sold. She discovered that the child disliked fake hair and would spit it out. Dirty hair was best, flavored with the person from whose head it had fallen. Ogechi managed a steady stream of food for the baby, but it required more and more as each day passed. All the hair she had gathered at work would be gone by the next morning, and Ogechi had no choice but to strap the child to her back and allow it to chaw on her dwindling nape. Mama was not curious about the baby, but the two assistants were. When Ogechi denied their request for a viewing, their sudden deference returned to malice tenfold. They made extra messes, strewing hair after Ogechi had cleaned, knocking bottles of shampoo over until Mama twisted their ears for wasting merchandise. One of the girls, the short one with a nasty scar on her arm, grew bolder, attempting to snatch the cover off the baby's head and laughing and running away when Ogechi reacted. Evading her became exhausting, and Ogechi took to hiding the child in the shop on the days she opened, squeezing it in amongst the wigs or behind a shelf of unopened shampoos. And the thwarted girl grew petulant, bored, then gave up. One day, while the child was nestled between two wigs, and Ogechi, the other assistants, and Mama were having lunch at the eatery next door, a woman stopped by their table to speak to Mama. Greetings. I am greeted, Mama said. What is it you want? Mama was usually more welcoming to her customers, but this woman owed Mama money, and she subtracted each owed coin from her pleasantries. Mama, I have come to pay my debt. Is that so? This is the third time you have come to pay your debt, and yet we are still here. 
I have the money, Mama. Let me see. The woman pulled a pouch from the front of her dress and counted out the money owed. As soon as the notes crossed her palm, Mama was all smiles. Ah, a woman of her word, my dear sit. You are looking a little rough today. Why don't we get you some hair? The woman was too stunned by Mama's kindness to heed the insult. Mama shooed one of the other assistants toward the shop, naming a wig the girl should bring. A wig that was near where Ogechi had stashed the baby. I'll get it, Mama, Ogechi said, getting up. But a swift slap to her face sat her back down. Was anyone talking to you, Ogechi? Mama asked. She knew better than to reply. The assistant Mama had addressed snickered on her way out, and the other one smiled into her plate. Ogechi twisted her fingers into the hem of her dress and tried to slow her breathing. Maybe, if she was the first to speak to the girl when she returned, she could beg her, or bribe her, anything to keep her baby secret. But the girl didn't return. After a while, the woman who had paid her debt became restless and stood to leave. Mama's tone was muted fury. Sit, wait. To Ogechi, go, get the wig and tell the girl that if I see her again, I will have her heart. Mama wasn't accustomed to being disobeyed. Ogechi hurried to the shop, expecting to find the girl agape at the sight of her strange, fibrous child. But the girl wasn't there. The wig she'd been asked to bring was on the floor. And there, on the ledge where it had been, was the baby. Ogechi pushed it behind another wig and ran the first wig back to Mama, who insisted that the woman take it. Then Mama charged her, holding out her hand for payment. The woman hesitated but paid. Mama gave nothing for free. The assistant did not return to the emporium, and Ogechi worried that she'd gone to call some elder mothers for counsel. But no one stormed the shop, and when Ogechi stepped outside after closing, there was no mob gathered to dispense judgment. The second assistant left as soon as Mama permitted her to, calling for the first one over and over. Ogechi retrieved the baby and went home. In her room, Ogechi tried to feed the child, but the hair rolled off its face. She tried again, selecting the strands of clumps it usually favored, but it rejected them all. What do you want? Ogechi asked. Isn't this hair good enough for you? This was said with no malice, and she leaned in to kiss the baby's belly. It was warm, and Ogechi drew back from the unexpected heat. What have you got there? She asked. A rhetorical question to which she did not expect an answer, but then the baby laughed, and Ogechi recognized the sound. It was the snicker she heard whenever she tripped over discarded towels or dropped the broom with her clumsy hands. It was the snicker she'd heard when Mama cracked her across the face at the eatery. Ogechi distanced herself even more, and the child struggled to watch her, eventually rolling onto its side. It stilled when she stilled, and so Ogechi stopped moving, even after a whir of snores signaled the child's sleep. Should she call for help or tell Mama? Help from whom? Tell Mama what, exactly? Ogechi weighed her options till sleep weighed her lids. Soon, too soon, it was morning. The baby was crying, hungry. Ogechi neared it with caution. When it saw her, the texture of its cry softened, and Ogechi couldn't help it. She softened, too. It was hers, wasn't it? For better or for ill, the child was hers. She tried feeding it the hairs again, but it refused them. It did, however, nip hard at Ogechi's fingers, startling her. She hadn't given it any teeth. She wanted more than anything to leave the child in her room, but the strangeness of its cries might draw attention. She bundled it up, trembling at the warmth of its belly. It latched onto her nape with a powerful suction that blurred her vision. This is the sort of thing a mother should do for her child, Ogechi told herself, resisting the urge to yank the baby off her neck. A mother should give all of herself to her child, even if it requires the marrow in her bones, especially 
a child like this, strong and sleek and shimmering. After a few minutes, the sucking eased to something manageable. The child sated. At the Emporium, Ogechi kept the child with her, worrying that it would cry if she removed it. Besides, the brash assistant who had tried to uncover the child was no longer at the shop, and Ogechi knew that she would never return. The other assistant was red-eyed and sniffling, unable to stop even after Mama gave her dirty looks. By lockup, Ogechi's head was throbbing, and she trembled with exhaustion. She wanted to get home and pry the baby off her. She was anticipating the relief of that when the remaining assistant said, Why have you not asked after her? Who? Stupid answer, she thought as soon as she uttered it. What do you mean, who? My cousin that disappeared. Why haven't you wondered where she is? Even Mama has been asking people about her. I didn't know you were cousins. You know what happened to her, don't you? What did you do? The answer came out before Ogechi could stop it. The same thing I will do to you, she said, and the assistant took a step back, then another, before turning to run. At home, Ogechi put the child to bed and stared until it slept. She felt its belly, which was cooling now, and recoiled at the thought of what could be inside. Then it gasped, a little hairy gasp from its little hairy mouth, and Ogechi felt again a mother's love. The next morning, it was Ogechi's turn to open the store, and she went in early to bathe the baby with Mama's fine shampoo, sudsing its textured face, avoiding the bite of that hungry, hungry mouth. She was in the middle of rinsing off the child when the other assistant entered. She retreated in fear at first, but then she took it all in. Ogechi at the sink, Mama's prized shampoo on the ledge, suds covering mother knows what, and she turned sly, running outside and shouting for Mama. Knowing that it was no use calling after her, Ogechi quickly wrapped the baby back up in her old, torn-up dress, knocking over the shampoo in her haste. That was when Mama walked in. I hear you are washing something in my sink. Mama looked at the spilled bottle, then back at Ogechi. You are doing your laundry in my place? I'm sorry, Mama. How sorry are you, Ogechi, my dear? Mama said, calculating. Are you sorry enough to give me some of that happiness so that we can forget all this? There was no need for a song now, as there was no new child to be blessed. Mama simply stretched her hand forward and held on, but what she thought was Ogechi's shoulder was the head of the swaddled child. Mama fell to the ground in undignified shudders. Her eyes rolled as if she were trying to see everything at once. Ogechi fled. She ran all the way home, and even through her panic, she registered the heat of the child in her arms, like the just-stoked embers of a fire. In her room, she threw the child into its bed, expecting to see whirls of burned flesh on her arms, but finding none. She studied the baby, but it didn't look any different. It was still a dense tangle of dark fiber with the occasional streak of red. She didn't touch it, even when the mother and her urged her to. At any moment, Mama would show up with her goons, and Ogechi was too frightened to think of much else. But Mama didn't appear, and she fell asleep waiting for the pounding at the door. Ogechi woke in the middle of the night with the hare child standing over her. It should not have been able to stand, let alone haul itself onto her bed, nor should it have been able to fist her hair in a grip so tight her scalp puckered or stuff an appendage into her mouth to block her scream. She tried to tear it apart, but the seams held. Only when she rammed it into the wall did it let go. It skittered across the room and hid somewhere that the candle she lit couldn't reach. Ogechi backed toward the door, listening. But what noise does hair make? When the hair child jumped onto Ogechi's head, she shrieked and shook herself, but it gripped her hair again, tighter this time. She then did something that would follow her all her days. She raised the candle and set it on fire. 
and when the baby fell to the ground, writhing, she covered it with a pot and held it down long after her fingers had blistered from the heat until the child, as tough as she'd made it, stopped moving. Outside, she sat on the little step in front of the entrance to her apartment. No one had paid any mind to the noise. This wasn't the sort of building where one checked up on screams. Knees to her chin, Okechi sobbed into the callous skin, feeling part relief, part something else. A sliver of empathy Mama hadn't been able to steal. There was so much dirt on the ground, so much of it everywhere, all around her. When she turned back into the room and lifted the pot, she saw all those pretty shiny strands transformed into ash. Then she scooped dirt into the pot and added water. This, she knew, how to make firm clay, something she was born to do. When the mix was just right, she added a handful of the ashes. Let this child be born in sorrow, she told herself. Let this child live in sorrow. Let this child not grow into a foolish, hopeful girl with joy to barter. Okechi formed the head, the arms, the legs. She gave it her mother's face. In the morning, she would fetch leaves to protect it from the rain. That was Zizi Packer reading Who Will Greet You at Home by Leslie Anyeka Arima. The story appeared in The New Yorker in October of 2015 and was included in Arima's collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky, which was published by Penguin in 2017. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Zizi, now we've heard the story, let's get back to this idea of what kind of story it is, whether it's a fairy tale or a horror story or, or whatever else. Do you do you read it as, as a direct allegory of motherhood as we know it? Um, I don't know if I would say that I think it's a direct allegory, and I think that she's maybe even said that she's a try to write allegories. But what I do think is that, you know, there are all these books about motherhood in terms of like, you know, the cost of being a mother as well as being a sort of working woman, you know. But we really don't kind of talk about just the back and forth that's the yearning for motherhood, but also what then are the attendant cost of the yearning. I, I still want to find a word that's, you know, not quite allegorical. Um, Northrop Fry talks about all imaginative writing is like always in the realm of the hypothetical. And so 
to me, allegorical makes it seem as though there's a one-to-one correlation. And mm-hmm. I would feel as though this is more of like, there's always a sort of a one-to-two or three correlation of, <laughs> you know, possibilities. And that's yeah. what I feel this story does with motherhood. I guess it's safe to say that we all in the real world want to fashion our children in some way, right? Yeah. We want to form them, right? And she's so she's getting at that, at that idea. I guess I'm not sure reading the story if Ogechi is longing for a baby or if she's longing for a different kind of life for herself to to relive her own childhood and her own construction. Yeah. There's the one scene with the mother with, with her, I guess what you would call like her bio mother. They have this sort of screaming fit and um, the neighbors come in and separate them. And it's sort of, I guess I almost have to revert to allegorical for this because it, it does seem a, in a way in which she's trying to recreate a kind of mother-child bond that she didn't have. So for her, having a, a child is different from just the girl in the marketplace who has a child who's sort of not that extraordinary. And yet she marvels at how that child brings about this transformation upon the face of the sort of girl woman herself, you know? Yeah. And for her, I think that that's what she's seeking. She's seeking a feeling and a kind of I, I wish I could just only say relationship, but the relationship that engenders that type of feeling that she's never had. So it's kind of like in wanting to form this child, she's wanting to transform herself in some way. And as you said, recreate that relationship that she didn't have with her mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's also something about you know, what she wants to turn this child into and aspiring to produce a child who is soft and whimsical and also expensive. Yeah. Right? Do you think there's a, a strong class element in this? I would say class. And I would say for me, there's this aspect of girlhood. For girls, there are these so so many requirements that one must do certain duties, you know, like, and you don't get to sort of transform the way we think of the sort of 12-step journey for like for heroes, for boys, you know, where where you get to become the, the man that then solves all these problems and saves the world in some way and however small. Like for girlhood, you have to do all these duties and you have to be willing to be a kind of supplicant. And Ogechi seems to be saying like, I want to be able to dream. And she's been used to having to sort of toil in the mud, you know, and be called kind of like a mud child, all these kinds of things. So on the one hand, it's class. But on the other hand, I feel as though these are the aspirations of almost any girl who just sort of yearns to dream further than whatever her allotted station is in life, be it class or function by way of gender or be it by even what her own family has kind of set aside as being her lot in life and what her inheritance is as a girl. And so the material aspect of it is definitely there. I feel as though the material aspect is a stand-in and a representative also of a kind of dream world. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It is class, and I feel as though it's also very gendered. Yeah, and and that raises the point that there are no men in this story. Yeah. And if men do exist in this world, they don't take part in the reproductive process. But the only male in the story, I I think I have this right, is the yarn baby, whom yeah. she calls a yarn boy. Yeah. So why do you think she made that baby male? Yeah, I do think that there's this way in which If you feel as though you have another girl, you feel like there's yourself in that girl. I I don't don't know if I can bring too much of my own personal um, (laughs) (laughs) life. You're you're a mother of sons. Yeah. 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 I have two sons and I, I just think it would be different. I grew up very much aware of the sort of idea of, of gender as a construction. Like this was something that throughout college and maybe before college, I just always had in my mind and I had this, these ideas of how I was going to raise my kids if I ever had them. And then that, now, I won't say it all went out the window, but like a lot of that ended up not being a choice of mine um, when I actually had these two boys, you know, my sons. And 
I would say that I think that having the yarn baby be a boy is kind of like, this is what everyone says in society you should wish for. Like, this is now that you can sort of quit. You know, like you've had, the, you know, the, the person who can carry on the name. I mean, I don't feel that way, but this is how society feels. And yet to feel as though there's this kind of a revolt of sorts, that you, like yeah. that there's a way in which the child kind of revolts against you. I feel like there's a certain gentle tyranny to... A male child, <laughs> not the final construction of the male, but the becoming of the male. And whenever you read something like, you know, Here with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, it always talks about becoming a hero as a very male type of internal journey. And I began to wonder, well, what does it mean to be a heroine? And I think only maybe Victoria Schmidt, or I'll have to get the names right, even begins to talk about, like, a heroine's journey doesn't begin with, you know, here's the world as it is, this known world, and then you set about to change it. There is the world that is the perceived world that is an illusion. And the journey for the woman, for the heroine, is to uncover that illusion. And when I read that, I was kind of blown away. And I think that we're set up in society in general, and in particular in patriarchal sort of societies, the journey of becoming is male. And for the female, you have to like have the scales taken off your eyes in a way. I mean, I just, I just realized actually, as you were talking, how much there is a kind of inverse of the Cinderella story here. That yes. Cinderella starts with the misunderstood girl in the ashes. Yes. Cleaning up the fire and, you know, ends with her her glory marrying the prince, but or becoming a princess, I suppose. But um, here we have sort of the opposite. <laughs> we, we end in those ashes. Exactly. We end in ashes. Yeah, I feel as though you're right on with that. You know, that's one of the aspects of fairy tales that I love is that they take what is you know, in the real world, it becomes sort of symbolic and it transforms back, not from just only its symbol, but to its its actual self. So for her, like all of the things that are these possibilities, I mean, I think that we think of fairy tales, we have like all of these ingredients that then go into making the magic. And for a while, she has that in the child, but then she has to destroy it to ash, you know? And so the components that end up making up the world get incinerated rather than in Cinderella, you start from the ash and then you go into sort of glory. And that I think is sort of fitting for reality and for the psychological sort of brutality, I guess I would say, of of entering the world. And in fairy tales, generally, like you have these aids that come along and then they, they help you, you know? They help mm-hmm. you fairy godmother. At these positions and times of need. And here she kind of has the opposite, those who promise to kind of help her and actually then sap and siphon away her empathy, her happiness, you know. Um, Even the assistants are operating as these sort of stepsisters. The Cinderella analogy is perfectly apt. Yeah. I mean, instead of the fairy godmother, she has the evil stepmother and mama. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I feel as though the evil stepmother always gets a a bad rap <laughs> <You know, laughs> in, in fairy tales. And it's because, you know, the mother is supposed to be everything. You know, like the fathers can do almost anything. You know, the fathers just, you know, like eat their children. Or I mean, like, and then they're, they're kind of fine. They, they, it's sort of accepted. The mothers, if you do one thing, you leave your child for a moment or something like that. It's like a sin that turns the earth around. And so the actual dying of a mother, even though that's not the mother's fault, ends up being something that is like a an irreversible ill. And then to have to have a stepmother becomes a lot in life that one has to live with a kind of replacement. Yeah, so getting back to the idea of the the sort of martyrdom of motherhood, you know, there's that line early in the story where Ogechi says if she was to mother a child to mute and subdue and fold away parts of herself. The child had to be perfect. And later there's the line about giving the child even the marrow in your bones if it demands it. This sense that children are supposed to and allowed to consume their mothers, where is that coming from? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I wish I knew. You know, I mean, part of it is the reality of childbirth itself. Until recently, I mean, in, still in America, you know, if you're African American, you're you have two times of, of of a chance of dying in just delivering a, a your child. I mean, I think the idea of that this was something that you were expected to undergo that in having a child you could be giving your life was for the majority of human history just an accepted notion, you know. Yeah. And what Leslie's doing in encapsulating that expectation in her kind of myth story is something that's like making us aware of something that we have kind of embedded and put to the back of our minds in, you know, this sort of modern era. But it still happens. And then you have the child and you're very much expected to just give everything to it. Your career, your this, your that, your, you know, I have one book for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and and um rather than two or three and um at the moment but um <laughs> well let's go back to mama who you know is demanding payment in empathy and in joy yeah the implication being that we all pay for our position as mothers with our empathy and joy at mm-hmm. the same time mm-hmm. mama seems to have no empathy yeah um she seems to have no joy uh she just has greed where is all that empathy and joy going? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that the masterfulness of this story or the way that which the story operates so well is to make us pose those questions. And I would say that if you could posit a scenario in which mama doesn't come to us full-blown as she is, but as an earlier incarnation, we might see an Ogechi. You know, I don't think that Ogechi becomes mama later on or anything like that. But I think that the realm of possibility that there are all these possible selves and that one is that you could have given all of your happiness, your joy, your empathy away bit by bit. That it's not something that goes away in one fell swoop at one event, but in the sort of dailiness of being a parent in particular, being a mother. And So for Mama, she's wealthy, you know, and yet she doesn't have these basics, the basic feelings and emotions that one would want to have, empathy and joy. And it reminded me a little bit of something I read about America in which someone from another country wrote on some, you know, website, I think it was Quora or something like that. They were like, okay, America, you can be rather poor, but still maybe have a refrigerator or maybe have a a television. And these would be luxuries in some other place and yet not have these basics like healthcare, you know, (laughs) like, (laughs) and, and this story kind of put me in the mode of that, that you could own these emporiums and you'd still need to go to the lay person, the common, you know, woman and steal their happiness and steal their joy and steal their empathy. And I feel as though even though this is not written to be a cautionary tale, embedded in the character of Mama is that cautionary tale of who you could become if you're not tending to the garden of yourself. Um, that's who you could become. Right. And interestingly, she doesn't seem to have her own child. Yeah. No. She only has the kind of, in sort of business terms or whatever terms we would say, acolytes. You know, she has the yeah. assistants. She has Ogechi herself, who's, like you mentioned, a kind of Cinderella servant, paid worker, um, yet also, you know, someone who lives there as well, you know. And that is also the sort of relationship that I think that we should look at because it's not anything born out of true kinship. It's only sort of transactional. And I think that that is the danger of living this way, of having no real happiness, joy, or empathy, is that everything, then your your relations, even the ones that are the closest to you that should be more of a kinship are actually just transactional kinds of relationships. It's only fealty and it's never mm-hmm. actual kinship. Yeah. It's not actual love. Yeah. Um, I found myself wondering if Ogechi's own mother had paid for her with all of her empathy, and that's why she's so unsympathetic now, you know? Yeah, I I thought about that, you know, when I first read it, and then in subsequent sort of rereadings. It seems as though that's maybe one of the reasons we only get the brief glimpse of the sort of 
bio mother, I guess, is that we don't know what has gone on in that relationship to cause it to have decayed to the point where Ogechi feels as though she must leave. But we do feel as though there's a way in which Ogechi has revolted enough so that she's not going to partake of anything that she doesn't have to willingly. That the, every, anything she has to partake in is going to be one that's, that she's made a down payment in hope, you know? And right. so with her real mother, since she knows there's no hope there, she doesn't remain there. Let's get to the idea of hair. Why is hair such a dangerous substance here? And why is the hair baby so evil? Yeah. I wish I knew as much in terms of like Nigeria, how the like how hair works. I mean, I could have read it the way I read hair and maybe the African-American community. So much of your identity is hair. And um, the kind of thing that takes the most time... <laughs> away from your day, your living, is hair. You know, this baby being made out of hair makes a lot of sense to me. For there to be something that is so fragile, that can go up in a puff of smoke, that can be cut off, that can be, you know, discarded, that are the trimmings, and yet for it to be so important, to me, it made a kind of sort of internal logic and an internal sense. But then there is the aspect of, you know, just in my readings of certain traditions, the hair and anything that's sort of off from a person can be used against that person, you know, in certain kinds of uh, ceremonies, cultures that employ like the Yoruba, mag- you know, magic, that kind of thing. Like that kind of thing has a very, very charged valence. Hair does, hair, mm-hmm. nail clippings and such. And I think that she deliberately borrows those aspects of traditions to make that baby out of hair so that you can know that that is a part of not just her, but all these other people and has that attendant magic and is kind of a piece of them. So this Mm. idea of like something being taken from within and grown from within and yet extruded from you. You make it sound so creepy. No, I was going to (laughs) say it is gross in a little little way. I feel like it's a little (laughs) gross. You know, everything in certain traditional cultures is, uh, I was going to say metonymic, you know, you said allegorical and the idea of something of your body and yet still not on your body is, I think, Mm -hmm. an important kind of distinction you know, that I've always been fascinated by. And I think all kinds of folkloric traditions have an an aspect of taking of the thing that's of them and not on them. Right, right. And here we even, we have a fable or a a myth within the story about warning. It's a cautionary tale, warning about using hair to make a baby in this way. And, And Ogechi knows the story. She knows it, that in legend, the hair babies have eaten their mothers, you know? Yeah, yeah. I read over it again. And the idea of all the girls of the village in that parable story within a story wanting to claim their own hair out of that, like, huge tangled mass is really something, you know, as if you could really just take (laughs) find your own hair but then to do it and it has this sort of solomon's baby aspect to it but then there's this aspect of like okay now you're resting and then you're eaten by it or you know destroyed by it um is also just another sort of frightening tale within a tale yeah well we so we end the story and the hair baby is pile of ash and ogechi's resigned herself to making a baby from mud as she was made Again, we're we're ending where Cinderella starts in a sense, but I'm wondering if we should feel that she's learned a lesson that was a valuable lesson, not to sort of aspire beyond what's right or healthy for her, or if we should just feel that she's been completely crushed. Yeah. Um, I feel as though when I read that ending, I just, I'm always undone by it. I don't know if I feel as though we should feel completely crushed, but I feel as though when she says she gave it her mother's face and in the morning she would fetch leaves to protect it from the rain, she's come to some sort of reckoning in which the baby, which carried sort of all of these sort of hopes and unrealistic hopes, you know, the way we often do with our our children by living vicariously through them, was something that, like, she's going to sort of give it the lowest floor of existence in some sort of way. 
and kind of in that, maybe I'm overly optimistic and I'm always looking for hope in stories where there's no hope, but I felt as though that was this way from which to begin. You know, she says, let this child live in sorrow. Let this child not grow into a foolish, hopeful girl with joy to barter. And the idea that she's ending her sort of uh, portion of hope and then instilling in this baby or this child, this new way of just kind of being humble is, I would say, still maybe a hope. I think that's my own very uh, perverse reading of it. (laughs) But um, almost sort of acknowledging that one cannot make a child be what you want it to be. You know, that it still has to be from the ground up and be who it's going to be. I guess the hopeful part is also she's still making a baby. Yes, exactly. She's not not making a baby. Like we come to the penultimate paragraph or, you know, section, I should say. We have this feeling of just utter destruction. It feels like an ending or a murder or something like that. And then you have this sort of reprieve. You have this kind of rebuilding of something. So that in that way, even though the words are sorrow and not letting the child grow into a foolish, hopeful girl with joy to barter, there's still going to be something that's growing, you know, and it's going to grow of its own accord. And I don't think that that means that she will not tend it with some sort of hope or joy, but, but that she will not give of, you know, in a kind of way that's all encompassing and all sort of terrorizing, you know, this idea of motherhood in which you give everything away. Right. She's reformed her her sense of her own duty, I guess. Exactly. Her perspective has changed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Susie. Oh, thank you so much, Deborah. It's been a pleasure. Leslie Anyeka Arima is the author of the story collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky, which won the Kirkus Prize and the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. She's working on her first novel. Zizi Packer's debut story collection, Drinking Coffee Elsewhere, was published in 2003. She was chosen as one of the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 in 2006, and one of the New Yorker's 20 Under 40 in 2010. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.